I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore, specializing in African-American books and gifts full of culture diversity, the total African-American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need. Live from the Merck Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. of our socials can be found at KBLA1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA1580. Download the app and listen to us anywhere in the world in real time, but only if you download the app right now at KBLA1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of this program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure. Should you miss us any day in real time, but I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping the KBLA TV icon on your app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour. Is it time to scrap the people of color and its communities of color twin, along with all the pretense that all non-white groups can be seamlessly yoked together in the fight for equality by the color of our skin. These one-dimensional terms that suggest that we can only move forward if we move forward in lockstep. Conversation with LA Times columnist Sandy Banks in hour two. In our third hour, Americans all over are demanding a new sensibility, a new philosophy of government from Washington. Instead of sending spies to snoop on participants at Earth Day, I would welcome the efforts of concerned citizens of all ages to stop the abuse of our environment. Instead of watching a football game on television while young people beg for the attention of their president concerning our actions abroad, I would encourage them to speak out, organize for peaceful change, and vote in November. Instead of blocking efforts to control the huge amounts of money given political candidates by the rich and the powerful, I would provide certain limits on such amounts and encourage all the people of this nation to contribute small sums to the candidates of their choice. Instead of calculating the political costs of this or that policy and of weighing favors of this or that group, depending on whether that group voted for me in 1968, I would remind all Americans at this hour of the words of Abraham Lincoln, a house divided cannot stand. Long before Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Cory Booker, Deval Patrick, and a host of other black folk who have run for president, there was surely Anita St. Hill Chisholm who ran back in 1952 50 years ago. Let me pause for a quick second here. I know you just heard that clip, but were you processing the issues that Shirley Chisholm was raising 50 years ago in 1972? She's talking about campaign finance reform in 72. 
This is a black woman talking about the environment, protecting the environment in 1972. Oh, damn mercy. Um, today would have been her 98th birthday, a conversation about Shirley Chisholm's life and lasting legacy with Dr. Zinga A. Fraser, director of the Shirley Chisholm Project on Brooklyn Women's Activism, when we get to hour three, and I can't wait to get there. But in this first hour today, from junkie to judge, one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction. Retired judge Mary Beth O'Connor believes it was white privilege rather than luck that allowed her to become a judge after her meth addiction, and I am pleased to welcome her to this program. How are you today, ma'am? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. It is my great delight to have you on. Thank you for the opportunity, and I'm glad we have the hour because there's so much in this book that we can't do justice to even in 60 minutes, uh, but I'm glad I've got some time to unpack some of it with you, and thank you again for the opportunity. Um, this is a bold, bold, bold treatise, and whenever I see books like this, um, I, I often wonder why it is, as we might say in the black vernacular, you were so willing to put all your business in the streets. <laughs> uh, why you'd be so willing to tell all of your story uh, and why at a moment such as this? Well, I will say that I feel that there's sort of a hierarchy of addiction in America. It's better to be addicted to alcohol than to methamphetamine. It's better to pop pills than to shoot up. And I was an IV meth addict, mm -hmm. and yet I was able to recover. I have 28 years of continuous sobriety at this point, and I was able to put my life back together. And that judge is just sort of a marker of the professional accomplishment, not even the most important accomplishment in my recovery, but it's a marker that sort of has a social resonance that helps people understand that in recovery there are no limitations and who we are in the midst of our substance use disorder is not who we are when we're able to find sobriety. But why be so transparent? I'm glad you were. We'll talk about it throughout this hour, but why, why the transparency? You didn't have to do this. That's right. But I, I feel like I'm in a place because I am a retired judge, so I don't have those professional ramifications that people legitimately worry about. I can say these things out loud, and I don't have to suffer the consequences. I can speak for those who aren't able to speak or who choose not to, because open recovery is a choice. Mm. I'm going to follow you throughout this hour, as you will notice, um, and uh, as, as evidence of that. A moment ago, you said that, um, that being a judge wasn't even the proudest moment of your recovery over these last 28 years. Uh, so tell me what is, what, what, what has been. I mean, the most important report of recovery to me is the lack of chaos and the lack of obsession, right? Mm. I mean, that is a joy that impacts every other aspect of my life. But the part that's really the most rewarding is being able to participate in my relationships, to be able to be a good spouse, a good sister, a good friend, a good aunt. When you're in the middle of your addiction, you aren't able to really pay attention to others in, you know, in a deep way or be there when they need you or contribute in any way. And you're also not able to really fully experience the joy of those relationships, the gratification of those relationships. So that's really the most rewarding part. Um, but I am proud of my professional accomplishments, but day-to-day, -day, it's the relationships. As I said a moment ago, I'm glad we've got the hours. You can tell already there's a whole lot in this book uh, to interrogate. The book is called From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph over trauma and addiction when we come forward with retired judge Mary Beth O'Connor. We'll give you the story on how this uh, addiction commenced. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas.
Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. The book is called From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. Let's get this party started. Mary Beth O'Connor, tell me how this addiction began. So I, I really wanted in the book and to, to include the source of the addiction, in other words, why it sort of made sense to start using drugs at 12 years old, and that's really that I had a violent upbringing. My mother was violent at times, but mostly she just wasn't connected to me or focused on me. But when I was nine, we moved in with my stepfather, who was very abusive to her. He was, you know, verbally, emotionally, physically, and sexually abusive to me. And that just created the sort of vulnerability that made drugs look like they might be a helpful solution to manage my feelings, to manage my pain, to actually feel some happiness at moments. Um, so I picked up my first drug, which was alcohol, when I was 12 years old. Mm. Um, as you look back on that now, um, I hear the, the, the conditions that you were living under. As you look back all these years later, how do you process that you turned to alcohol at age 12? You know, I understand why I made that decision. What I didn't appreciate was that that solution was quickly going to turn into my number one problem. Right? Mm -hmm. If I would have known that, I'm not actually sure if 12-year-old Mary Beth could have made a different choice, perhaps. But I wasn't aware of that. I was looking at this as a positive, as something beneficial. And I didn't understand where it was going to head. And it actually took a dark turn pretty quickly. When you say pretty quickly by that, you mean? Well, I mean, I moved on. I used, you know, pot, uh, weed, they'd say today, and mm -hmm. pills. I did a lot of acid in my sophomore year. But when I was just 16 years old, I found what became my drug of choice, which was methamphetamine. And at 17, I was shooting up meth. I was in full bore addiction when I graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. um, we've got the hour, so you can, you can stretch out here. You don't, you don't have to talk in sound bites, <laughs> Judge. I know, I, know, <laughs> I know these things typically go. So you can, this, is, this is storytelling time, and I invite you to do so. Uh, you don't have to be as brief. Um, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this. Um, tell me more about the surroundings. You, I know what happened, what's happening inside of your family. I'm, I'm trying to get a sense now. Uh, paint a picture for me. Illustrate for me. Your, your neighborhood, your school, your friends. Give me, give me a, I, need, I need a narrative here to go along with what you were experiencing inside the house. So, I, I mean, for me, school was always my positive place, right? Mm -hmm. I always got a lot of positive attention at school. Teachers paid a lot of attention to me. I remember when I was in second grade, the teacher took me to the library, and in our library, the books were organized by grade, and she told the librarian that I could read any book in the library. I wasn't limited to my grade, and that mm -hmm. was a really happy and proud moment for me that I was noticed, first of all, but noticed for some, you know, for a, a characteristic that was sort of inherent in me that was valued. And so that was a real positive. And I grew up in a, a small town outside of Trenton, New Jersey. Bordentown is where I spent most of my time. And it was a little dead-end street, you know, so we were sort of isolated uh, from the, the other kids during the summer and after school, so it was fairly tight-knit. You know, we, we spent a lot of time in each other's houses in the winter when it was snowing. I mean, we, you know, mm -hmm. play, play pool, play board games, play, play cards, all the sort of Things that that kids did in the in the mid seventies, and so it was outside of the home. It was a generally a positive environment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder, and uh, I'm I'm struck by the word you used a moment ago when you referenced that the uh, uh, that at school, uh, particularly as, as it relates to the library story you told, you felt noticed. You felt noticed. I've said it many times on this program and beyond. Said it yesterday, in fact, uh, at a program I spoke at in Northern California that every one of us wants to be loved, 
appreciated, affirmed, and acknowledged. Whether we can say that verbally, audibly, or not, that's what we all want. And I believe it is a part of the human condition. We want to be loved. We want to be respected. We want to be affirmed. And we want to be acknowledged. And when that doesn't happen, particularly at a young age, then you see kids going all kinds of different um, and uh, uh, traumatic uh, directions or directions that end up being traumatic, I should say. Um, but that word notice jumped out at me. Um, talk to me about um, about whether or not you think this journey, this story uh, would have happened had you felt noticed at an early age. Well, you know, I, my, my, I say the trouble with my life started before I came out of the womb. This was, my mother was pregnant with me in 1961. She was unmarried Irish Catholic. So this was a major problem. When my mother um, had me, I was actually left with the nuns for the first six months of my life. I didn't live with my family. And I'm assuming that they took, you know, they fed me and took care of me. And my mother says she visited sometimes. Um, but when I met my husband, you know, many years later, he said that I reminded him of the monkeys who hadn't been touched enough when they were babies. <laughs> and I think that's an accurate assessment. My mother, you know, I look, she fed us. She kept us dressed. You know, to her, she was doing her job, but she wasn't engaged with us. She didn't really notice what we were doing or ask us anything. What happened at school today? No, none of those kind of conversations. It was always either... Uh, being ignored or it was there was something negative going on, being yelled at about something or being demeaned about something. So I do think, I, I say that the problem with my mother, she was somewhat violent, but the real or bigger issue was the lack of bonding, the lack of connection. So I helped, felt like I had no support. When the violence with my stepfather started, I knew from prior experience I could not rely on my mother to help me or take care of me. So I was on my own. Mm. To that point now, uh, let, me, let me just pause for just a second because I, I want to ask you um, to, to put your robe back on and sit back on the bench just for a second uh, and uh, assume that you are talking to a courtroom full of parents uh, whose kids uh, you have had come before you and you're trying to counsel these parents, uh, attempting to help them to understand how to better parent their babies. Uh, and I don't think this question is presumptuous at all. I'm asking it because of what you experienced and what your mother did not provide for you. Looking back on that, which led you to start doing, you know, abusing, uh, self-medicating at the age of 12. What would you say to parents uh, about uh, paying attention to noticing, acknowledging, affirming their children? I think the the bond that is needed that you referenced earlier is critically important, and we perhaps underestimate it. I mean, one of the challenges for parents today is how busy everyone is, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, economically, many parents have to have more than one job, or one parent may, you know, work at different schedules. The children also tend to be overscheduled, and they have, a, you know, a lot of homework, more than we did in our day. And so there's not as many opportunities for people, for the parents and the children to sort of have a natural engagement, a natural light time interaction. And that can be problematic. I know in schools they're looking at whether the homework is, is too much, if it's actually having a negative impact rather than a mm -hmm. positive impact. And those are important factors. I agree. It's, if you can – a child, for me, I would have – if I would have felt that my mother was on my side, when things got hard, I would have had somewhere to turn. And that would have been a significant difference from my experience. Yeah. I'm spending a few minutes here on this backstory because I believe that once you lay the foundation of the life of uh, 
a particular person, you understand better the choices they made as they as they grew and as they aged. And we're going to work our way uh, into how she ended up becoming a judge with a meth addiction. We'll talk to that uh, issue, trust me, uh, as we move forward. But I want to just establish um, the early years of her life to get a better sense of um, how she got on the path to being an addict in the first place. Uh, so you end up graduating high school, as you say, by the time you finished high school, you were a full-blown addict. Um, while your mother didn't notice you at home, didn't affirm you, acknowledge you at home, um, when you're 12 and you start, you start abusing alcohol and then you start doing, you know, weed and then you start doing methamphetamine, when all this stuff starts to happen and you're obviously navigating your way through school nonetheless, did anybody notice you there? What I'm, what I'm pressing on is whether or not anybody noticed the addict, the full-blown addict by your own recognition and acknowledge that you had become. You know, the interesting thing is that my mother never mentioned drug use to me, but other meth users at the time would tell me that I was do- going overboard. <laughs> mm-hmm. My my colleagues in, in using methamphetamine would talk to me that I was using too much, that I wasn't getting enough sleep, that I had lost too much weight. That's, those are the people who noticed and pointed it out and showed concern, which is, you know, a very bizarre situation. Yeah, what, how, how do you read that? How do you read the fact that you're at school, you have teachers, you have principals and assistant principals and guidance counselors and all kinds of adults in school, and you're telling me the persons who noticed that you had a problem were the other methamphetamine users and not these other adults? Yes. I think in school it was because I kept going to school until the end of my senior year when I started missing a lot. So my grades were still good. I was still there. I was turning in my work. I wasn't, you know, late. So I don't think they were looking for a problem. I I mean, I had other behaviors even before the substance use disorder. I could get, you know, snippy. I had a a aggressive, a verbal aggressiveness problem Mm -hmm. that was related to, you know, the trauma. I could get mean with teachers. God forbid a teacher made a mistake in front of me. I would jump all over it and Mm -hmm. point it out. Um, But I think because I did well until the end of high school, they just assumed that everything was fine. And whatever behavior abnormalities they saw were just normal teenage angst. Mm. Um, Two things just ran through my mind. That's why I'm pausing here as you were uh, finishing up your sentence. The first thing that runs through my mind is to ask whether or not you were a good student and how you balanced being a methamphetamine user. And people are telling you you're overdoing it. You're in your teens, um, and yet you apparently, uh, again, are turning in your homework on time, and you're making grades that are decent enough not to flunk out. Were you just that bright? How did you balance those two things? School was just easy for me. That's that's the truth of it. Mm-hmm. It was. I often could finish a lot of my homework on the bus. It didn't take a lot of my concentration to do it. On the other hand, my senior year, once I turned 18 in March of my senior year, they couldn't call my mother if I didn't go to school anymore, and I missed mm-hmm. a lot of school those last few months. But I just told them I was having family problems, and they just let me make up the work. And I did have very good grades. I was accepted at UCLA. You know, that's where I was headed to college at the time that I got arrested. Um, so they they didn't notice. It was hidden in that way. Mm. The other thing that came to mind when you were telling that story, and you know this well, um, and we're going to get to this in this hour after news, traffic, and sports here, and that is the story that you're telling right now that's being heard by many African Americans in in the state of California and the city of L.A. and across the nation uh, listening to KBLA Talk 1580, they're hearing you tell a story that they know full well and you know full well that if you were in this present moment and you were a black child, a black girl doing the things that you did, um, you wouldn't just be disciplined. 
you'd be expelled and even jailed. We see these stories, as you do, uh, Mary Beth O'Connor, all of the time, the ways in which they judge and uh, treat in punitive and pejorative ways black girls um, for doing far less. Um, but how, how do you process? And again, we'll, we'll move forward in just a second here. But just looking back, how do you process that everybody just thought you, you know, they bought your story that you were having difficult times at home and you were. Um, they, they, you, you, you could be, uh, as you said, uh, you, you snap on people and, and verbally aggressive, all the stuff you got away with. Can you imagine getting away with that as a black girl in school? No. And especially not today. I think it's actually gotten worse than it was, you know, when I was in school in the seventies, the way that they are criminalizing children for normal behavior or trying to frighten them into compliance, which is not a successful strategy. I mean, we've all seen the videos and the stories. It's, um, it's horrible what the kids are doing, and it's not even just the, the child who it happens to. All the other children in the room are witnessing that. That's mm-hmm. a trauma for them to even see that happening to one of their classmates. So I, I agree. It's, it's very problematic to be treating typical child behavior as criminal or as deserving of some kind of terrorizing um, response. Yeah, that phrase stuck out at me, and you said they just uh, they saw you as just a – you know, being a teenager, uh, black kids too often don't get that luxury. They don't get seen through that particular prism. I love her candor. I love her transparency. I love her honesty. I love her book. It's called From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. Retired Judge Mary Beth O'Connor is our guest in this hour on Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk fifteen eight. I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore, specializing in African-American books and gifts full of culture diversity, the total African-American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need. Continuing our conversation now with retired judge Mary Beth O'Connor with a provocative and powerful text uh, called From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. The book doesn't drop until January 24, um, just uh, eight, nine, ten weeks away from now. But I am so delighted, so honored, and I'm sure you're enjoying this conversation we're having with Mary Beth O'Connor. I'm just thankful to her for giving us this exclusive com- this conversation uh, in advance of the book's release. Um, so the book can be pre-ordered at Amazon and any- anywhere you get your books. Uh, you can pre-order the text right now. Uh, doesn't drop though until January 24th. And how delighted are we that she's on talking to us about the book in advance of its publication? I thank her for the conversation, and I'm grateful for the time with her. Um, so, um, uh, Mary Beth O'Connor, we were we were talking before news traffic and sports about the ways in which um, black girls, black boys, certainly these days. Uh, would not be allowed the uh, the range <laughs> uh, that you were allowed, for lack of a better word, uh, when you were growing up. And uh, people just saw this as you, you know, being a teenager and just, uh, you know, uh, the, the behavior was normalized for them, uh, even though you were a full-blown meth addict uh, at that particular time. Um, so it's one thing to, to be harming yourself, um, but eventually you get into some trouble. Uh, that's a little worse than just being a drug addict. Uh, you referenced earlier in this conversation the arrest. Um, let's take it from there. So when I was 18, and it was a month before I was supposed to leave for college, I was arrested for possession of methamphetamine and syringes. And the 
they, they were very lenient with me. They, you know, it's a small town. I mean, a, a juvenile record may be sealed, but it's a small town. They would have known mm-hmm. if I would have had a juvenile record, and I and I didn't. But the judge actually reduced my charges down to a, to a disorderly person offense. It's not, it wasn't even a misdemeanor. It was below that. And and not only did they do that, but they gave me just probation. And in the judge's order, he said that if I wasn't arrested, I think it was for three years, that I could have my record expunged. The other part of it that I often think about is that when I was arrested, I had meth in multiple packets. They could have charged me with intent to sell. And under other circumstances or for, let's say, a black boy or, you know, 18-year-old, they might have done that because one of the racial disparities isn't just that you're arrested, it's what you're charged with. Um, And so for me, instead of getting that enhanced multiple packet, you know, intent to sell charge, they reduced it down to a disorderly person, and that's all I had to plead guilty to. This this would be funny if it weren't so serious, right? It'd be funny, be yes. laughable if it weren't so serious. The ways in which they were bending over backwards to be lenient to a young Mary Beth O'Connor, uh, offering in advance to expunge her record. I mean, it's again, it'd be laughable if it weren't if it weren't so serious, given all the racial disparities that we know exist in our uh, system of justice or injustice, as it were, for so many of us. Uh, when you look back on that, um, were you were you at all surprised? Given what you knew you had in those various packets, were you surprised at how easy they went on you, how lenient they were? I was surprised to a certain degree, yes. I mean, I knew other people who had been arrested, but in my hometown, it was usually the same people over and over. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so this was a little bit of a different situation. But I will say what surprised me more was later when I, you know, I did better with my meth for the first couple of years of college, but then I really went back the January of my senior year of college and for the next 10 years. And every day, I carried meth every day. And if I was pulled over for a ticket, if I was in a car accident and the police showed up, and even when I know that I had been up for two or three days and did not look my best, I was never searched, not once. I was always well aware that under other circumstances, I probably would never have gotten to college because of the initial charge, Mm. or I would have had a longer criminal record because I I had meth on me every day for 10 years. The question is so obvious. Let me ask it anyway. Um, what does that say to you um, about our system of jurisprudence in this country? You know, when I had my first roommate in college, uh, she told her father was African American, and she told me about this racial disparity, and it was actually a surprise to me. I really had thought, well, you know, they arrest you, you're either guilty or not. But she explained the, the racial differential, and that sort of opened my mind to it. And so I started seeing the news stories and the news articles, and it made me, at that point, really revisit my own history, and that's sort of what put it in my mind. But it it is true. It's at every level, right? A person of color is more likely to get stopped. If they're stopped, they're more likely to get searched. If they're searched, they're more likely to get arrested. The charges tend to be higher. The sentences tend to be longer. It's at every point of that system there is a racial disparity that massively adds up. And, of course, once you have those convictions, now, you know, the next time you're arrested, it's, it's, they're looking at the first time. Plus, there's the bail problem, right, that people are in jail and sometimes plead guilty to get the heck out. And so, yes, it's a complicated and, um, and multi-layered problem at every level of the criminal justice system. <clears throat> I'm still very, while I'm disappointed 
um, for lack of a, a more different, a more uh, accurate word, disappointed, uh, upset, uh, full of angst and anger. There we go uh, about the system uh, and the loopholes in it, the disparities in it, built into it, baked into it. To be frank about it, um, I'm still very impressed with you. How are you navigating college, taking meth every day? Well, for com- for the first three and a half years of college, I did do better. Right. <laughs> and I emphasize better. Right. Um, I mostly drank alcohol. I would do pills or Coke sometimes. But I had a really life-threatening multi-assailant rape in college, and then I moved in with a violent boyfriend. And I just I couldn't hang on anymore. So I started using meth again in January of my senior year of college, and I didn't get sober until I was 32. Mm. So that's how I played it. And, and after I started using meth again, I mean, I, I, I couldn't hold a job. I mean, I say I worked my way down the corporate ladder because I, I had a fancy Berkeley degree, but I couldn't get to work. And when I was there, I couldn't concentrate. And so every job was, you know, less money, less responsibility, held it for less time. So it, the impact of it did hit me professionally. But by then, I had already graduated from Berkeley. Yeah, and, and Ber- Berkeley is no... Berkeley is no, uh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to, I was going to say, say another school. I don't want to disparage anybody, but Ber- Ber- Berkeley's not a cakewalk, Mary, Mary Beth O'Connor. No, it's not a cakewalk. It's not. And I, and I actually did pretty well there, even though I was, you know, having problems and living with the violent boyfriend and everything, I did pretty well, but I, mm. I could not hang on. And by mm. January of my senior year for the next 10 years, it was just a downhill slide in every area of my life. Um, talk to me about the ways in which your meth addiction influenced you. You're sort of, you're sort of teeing this up for me, the way your meth influence impacted the decisions, the choices that you were making from college to the age of 32. I mean, I was just trying to hang on as best I could. I, it, I, every decision was pro- problematic. I couldn't. I would choose jobs that I thought I could still keep using and, and maybe hang on to it for a while. I remember one time I, I turned down a job because the desk that I was going to be seated at was sort of in the front of the office, and I knew they would notice that I was in the bathroom half the time and getting high, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't. I turned down that job because I knew it, I was going to get fired soon anyway. I had really destroyed most of my relationships. I was having a lot of physical problems by 32 years old. Meth is a harsh drug, and my body was starting to show the consequences of that. But mostly I was just, you know, miserable, and I felt helpless, and I I saw no way out. So it's, you know, it's it's a miserable existence. But being a, a drug addict is not a happy place to be. It's um, it's not like the beginning when I was having fun with my girlfriend drinking Boone's Hill Farm Strawberry Hill wine. It was mm. just misery, misery upon misery upon misery. And yet with all that you just laid out up to the age of 32, which is where we are now in this conversation, you've, you've, you've dealt with all of the stuff you've just laid out for the first 32 years of your life, essentially. Um, but other than that arrest at 18, um, nothing was added to your criminal record. That's right. And I, and I did expunge it because all I had to do was file a piece of paper with an affidavit saying I've never been arrested again. And they checked and that was it. So no other criminal charges the entire time. Hmm. And even though you were a user, you were still being offered jobs. You, 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 you're, you're, you're a full-blown meth addict and as a white woman, you're still being offered jobs. That's true. But part of it was that my education could fool them. Sure, right? sure, sure. The Berkeley, yeah. Um, at my last job before rehab, I was doing word processing. And so, I mean, you know, that's a perfectly valid job, but that's that's what I was doing. I was just yeah. typing, basically. Yeah. 
And I could only hold on to that for nine months because of my, my meth addiction. Well, uh, two things. One, uh, the value of a Berkeley degree just went up in my estimation. So <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you're looking to go to school, <laughs> if you're looking to go to school, uh, consider Berkeley because you can get a Berkeley degree and be a meth addict and still get offered jobs. Um, so, again, I, I, I respect a great deal more now the value of a degree from Cal Berkeley, number one. Number two. Obviously, something happened at age 32 uh, that got the attention of Mary Beth O'Connor. She goes on to become a judge. We'll tell you that in a moment. But what happened at 32 is my question. I know it's yours as well. You'll get an answer to it in a moment when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Malik I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore specializing in African-American books and gifts full of culture diversity. The total African-American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Retired Judge Mary Beth O'Connor, it seemed like two minutes ago I was saying, we got time, stretch out. Now I'm looking at my clock saying, hurry up, Tavis. <laughs> this conversation is moving faster than I expected it to move. Uh, that happens sometimes when you're, when you're talking to a great storyteller, and you are. Her book is called From Junkie. To judge one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction. You can order the book right now. It doesn't drop until January 24. But how lucky are we, how blessed are we that Mary Beth O'Connor is talking to us about the book before it even comes out. Uh, all right, watching my clock here. What happens at 32? I go, I go into rehab. And, um, you know, I used twice the first five months there and once when I got home and that was it for me. So my sober date's January of 94. And then I had to rebuild everything. I had to put, you know, build my life back together, which took a lot of work. I also had to address the PTSD that I didn't know I had and anxiety. So recovery was a multi-layered and and long process for me. Yep. What occasioned, um, what was the genesis, uh, the, the backstory behind what got you finally at 32 into rehab? When I lost that word processing job, I just did not even have the energy to put a resume together again and even try. Like, I was that exhausted, exhausted at the deepest, deepest level. And my partner uh, was ready to throw me out. And I, so sort of as a last chance, the last ditch effort, I said, well, what if I go to rehab? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that's what I did. But, and I didn't believe I could get sober. It, I really thought the best that would happen is I would learn how to use less. Like, that was as far as my imagination could go. Um, it wasn't that I wanted to keep using. It was just that stopping was beyond, I, I just couldn't imagine it. It was, it was a foreign concept to me. Yeah, when you start at, when you start at age 12 and now you're 32, do the math. I can see why that was the only option, I mean, the only way that you thought your life would go or could go and that sobriety wasn't even really an option. Again, you start at 12. I, I, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, I know people who have perfect records, uh, who have run for judge on more than one occasion and can't get elected or appointed uh, to a judgeship. Um, how did Mary Beth O'Connor end up becoming a judge after putting her life together? Well, I went to law school um, at Berkeley Law when I had six and a half years sober. And so by the time law school asked about criminal history, well, first of all, I had an expungement, but second of all, they don't, the drug history, they only asked back like five years. So mm -hmm. I, w I had almost 10 at the time. 
And then um, I worked at a big law firm. Then I did government work for class actions. And then I was an administrative law judge, which is like a testing process. It's not an elected judge, and it's not the kind of judge where you go testify at Congress. It's you take, you know, they they open the applications, and thousands of people apply, and then you take a bunch of levels of tests, and they cut, 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 and then they hire out of the group that was left standing. And so that's how I did it. But I, I was appointed a, a judge when I had 20 years of sobriety, I emphasize. Mm-hmm. These, these were not overnight. Oh, I think I'll be a judge tomorrow. Law school at six and a half years sober. I was appointed a federal judge at 20 years sober. Mm-hmm. No, I get it. Uh, I get it. But the backstory is the backstory. It, it's still the journey that you were on. And so we have to we have to acknowledge that and, and, and celebrate that. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Mary Beth O'Connor, I, I want to ask her, um, I have to ask her a couple of things. One, about record expungement and how that reality might change the lives of persons in this country. There are only a few states, Pennsylvania comes to mind, uh, where um, there are a plethora of ways to get your records expunged. Um, I want to ask her about that and how that might impact the lives of so many people of color and others in this country if they could just expunge their records. And then, of course, I want to have a, a brief conversation with her about what she's learned about white privilege. You're listening to Mary Beth O'Connor on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. I do this every day, and guests always tell me, man, that hour went really fast. And now I'm saying, this hour really went fast. Uh, I, I Let me close with this. Uh, two things. One, your thoughts on record expungement. Um, I've been talking about this for many, many years, um, how aided and abetted so many people I know in this country would be if they could get their records expunged. Your thought about that? Your thoughts about that? Having a record, especially a felony record, has many impacts, like professional, getting a job. Even in certain places, being able to rent an apartment, it can be problematic. It used to be you couldn't get financial aid with a felony, and now that's a little lighter, but there's still some rules around that. So expungement is critically important. It does vary from state to state and even jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In California, it's county by county. There are different rules county by county. Um, but there is an option for many that they might not realize they have if enough time has passed, you know, depending on the nature of the charges. So I encourage anyone who would like to get their record expense to look into that and to reach out to the local district attorney or even hire a, an attorney themselves to help them get the expungement because it does have a vast positive impact. Yeah. And finally, let me weave these two questions together and you'll know exactly what to do with it, uh, uh, Mary Beth O'Connor. Um why did you write this book, and what have you learned in your life about white privilege? Well, I will say on the on the white privilege side, I was thinking back to if I would have been charged with a felony and convicted of it, I, I likely would never have gone to college. That's the truth of it. And that would have changed everything. Mm. It would have changed the entire, you know, progression of my life. But then the expungement, if I – or that I would have – been arrested when I had drugs on me any time during those 10 years. It would have impacted me professionally later with law school or um, being able to be a judge. So I am well aware that although I had challenges in my family and a lot of violence, I also had privilege that helped along the way. And I am um, I'm, I'm sort of grateful is an odd word to say, but I, I, I know that I benefited. I know that that helped me get to where I am today. And that is unfortunate for those who had the obstacle put in 
in uh, before them for no valid reason other than the color of their skin. No, grateful is not a strange word at all. Um, I've said many times that uh, my view is that gratitude is the gateway to greatness. Gratitude is the gateway to greatness. And so to have a grateful heart, um, I think, makes you pretty special. I don't think that's a, a strange word at all. Um, what do you hope folks take away from this book? I really do want people to understand that for many of us, substance use disorder is not out of the blue. There's a history that leads up to it, and hopefully we can be a little more compassionate and understanding, but also that recovery is possible for pretty much everyone. I mean, I had a very violent background. I had an extensive drug history, and I was able to recover and have a positive and happy life and be a good citizen, right? Yeah. You know, contribute to my community. So I just, you know, don't give up on anyone. <laughs> I was shooting meth and I was able to recover. Everyone deserves that opportunity and we should do what we can to help them get there. That's a sermon right there. Um, and we'll close on that note. Don't ever give up on anyone. That is the moral to this story. Never, ever give up on anyone. Uh, I'm still struck by the fact she can go from basically 18 to 32, 19 to 32, carrying meth every day and never even get searched. Uh, but um, such is uh, the notion of white privilege in this country, but she's honest and transparent about it. But what I'm more moved by is the story of overcoming. You never let misery have the last word in your life. The book is called From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. I've only scratched the surface of all the good stuff inside this book on these pages. The book drops on January 24, but we thank uh, today on November 30th, Mary Beth O'Connor for talking to us on KBLA Talk 1580. Judge O'Connor, good to have you on. All the best to you in the, in the coming years. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's my great honor. Hour two of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. Malik Books. I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore specializing in African-American books and gifts full of culture diversity. The total African-American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need.